Unexplained Deaths and Mysteries with Deborah Davis. Welcome back, everybody, and here we are again with such an interesting case. This dates back in time, and wow, when you really examine all of the details, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to hand you straight over to Ian in a second. He knows much more about these cases than me, but I also needed to let you know that we don't have Chris with us today. He's actually really busy with lots and lots of other projects. And to be honest, if you go along to Netflix, you're probably bound to see him on there, especially in the, in the crime section. So anyway, handing over to Ian. Ian, tell us about today's case and who we are investigating and looking at. Well, first of all, hi, Debbie. Good to see you again. And uh, hello to everyone listening. If you want to know more about my specific details, my background, uh, please listen to the first three or four podcasts. But in a nutshell, I'm a criminologist, as Debbie alluded to, a writer, ex-senior police officer, and um, I know a little bit about the law, apparently. I also love annoying my two children and following Notts County. But I guess One thing that we have in common, Debbie and I, is our undying curiosity. And this case has amused me, compelled me, I think, ever since I was uh, young enough uh, to read about it. Jack the Ripper, probably one of the most epic, continuing crime stories that, in my opinion, has never reached a satisfactory verdict. And I've been on numerous ripper walks around East London, and I suppose I wanted to understand why on earth I keep going back and walking across the same pavements and the same environment in London. It was almost like I was hooked on this particular case. And I've lost count of how many times I've gone on these uh, ripper walks, um, Debbie. But um, the last one was different for me. Because when I turned up, I was really angry that the guy that was going to show us around hadn't turned up. And then I realised I'd turned up an hour early. That's how compelling it was for me to get there. And I I went for a drink just around the corner. And I thought to myself, why on earth am I feeling so excited and, you know, have to keep coming back to the scene of the crime? I decided following the last tour that I'd set myself three targets. First of all, to identify why I am compelled to tread the route so often what I could discover about the early lives of the victims, and I needed to name a suspect. Today, I'd like to uh, cover off some of that territory with your uh, ideal um, companionship. Fabulous. Sounds very interesting. Where do we begin? Well, I suppose, first of all, I need to understand what makes me curious. And I did a little bit of research you'd expect a criminologist uh, to do. And there are a lot of scientific descriptors. But I was surprised at the conclusion, I think, of Celeste Kidd and Benjamin Hayden of the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science uh, at the University of Rochester in New York, which is a curiosity is a basic element of our cognition. But its biological function, mechanisms and neural underpinning remain poorly understood. Yet Daniel Berlin uh, added that it is the driving force behind the human desire to explore. And I think that was really powerful for me that explains why I am curious. And I think it keeps me pretty young as well, uh, this curiosity. And I know, Debbie, you know, your mutual curiosity has has 
probably as hot as mine. And that's why I enjoy, you know, our conversations on the podcast. So, so the first target was sort of uh, covered off, but um, just a little bit of a narrative sort of to get us into the sort of background of Victorian London, if I can just uh, sort of, you know, reflect on the writings that I've done about this particular case. Um, Many listeners are probably aware that um, Jack the Ripper was actually referred to as the Whitechapel murderer prior to the media frenzy following the publication of the infamous Dear Boss letter received by the Central News Agency of London on the 27th of September, 1888. Latterly, the From Hell correspondence, uh, which was sent to George Lusk, chair of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, on the 15th of October, 1888. And this letter was accompanied by half a human kidney. If we look actually at what Victorian London was like all those many, many years ago, it was perhaps the social injustices of uh, Victorian Britain that were arguably at its most catastrophic epicentre of London's East End. During the Ripper's reign of terror, Whitechapel, interestingly about the size of 200 football fields, was home to a quarter of a million people living in the most squalid and appalling conditions. Sanitation didn't exist and raw human sewage mixed with animal waste was placed on the playgrounds of the children of the poorest families, where it was commonplace for two families to share one cramped room. Only half of the Whitechapel youngsters would reach the age of five. Of those that survived, life expectancy was at best mid-40s. The murder rate often peaked to around 20 a night, fuelled by the lucrative trade in body parts facilitated by local and scrupulous pub landlords, including the proprietor of the Ten Bells. It's still there, folks. If you're in London, have a drink there. It's, uh, it's quite an atmospheric place. Around 80% of the women were prostitutes, and many of their clients travelled from the more affluent West End. So that's my sort of base descriptor of what Victorian London was like. But I'm really interested, Debbie, because I know that you've looked into this case as well. I'm not a ripperologist, let let me put it there, but um, I guess there is an issue for me around the slaying of these five ladies. And I think what I'd like to do as we continue our discussion is to give reverence for the fact that these ladies were individuals. They became prostitutes, but beforehand, many of them had children. They had a previous life. They had loves, they had desires, and they had hopes. And I think very often we look at this case just to sort of model it around one particular individual, i.e. Jack the Ripper, can be uh, not telling the full story. So as we go through these horrific slayings. I'd like to pay testimony to those individuals. But in a nutshell, over a very short period of time, there were five killings. And I think that the way that those were carried out, the fact that many were mutilated, and we can go into some of the more gory details a little bit later on, and the fact that no one was ever prosecuted, arrested by the police, really flags up a number of very sinister issues for me in terms of what were the police up to? Did they know what was going on? Were there types of cover-ups? All these sort of issues that many people will say a type of conspiracy. But then again, I know from being a police officer, you know, these are the things that, you know, police officers think about, the pressures that officers are under with a serial killer. And that's where the definition of a serial killer was first recorded in Victorian London 
when Jack the Ripper killed those five victims. Going back to what you you just said about the you know the name that that was given for those women prostitutes, I I always believe that we are not in a position to judge anybody for you know for what they do to make ends meet, feed their children, and simply survive. And so I don't like that word prostitutes, but that's the word that's been attached to those ladies. I just think basically they were just trying to yeah, survive, feed the children and live in what were absolutely the most horrific circumstances. I genuinely don't believe anybody, you know, grows up and thinks I want to sell my body for sex. I I really don't at all. I think that people that end up in that situation are there for a reason. And, um, you know, we all should have a heart and respect them. Uh, because it cannot have been an easy life. It still isn't an easy life to be in that profession to this day, is it, at all? But yeah, I don't know the intricacies of the deaths of these ladies. And I purposefully, for this podcast, haven't researched their deaths in detail because what I wanted to do with this particular episode is to listen to you. And much as I would do that with a client, I would sit and listen, you know, to a client talking about something. And then usually what will happen from a, I suppose, a mediumship perspective is I'm told things that that relate to whatever you're talking about. And that's actually happened on the two occasions I've helped the police, you know, with missing people. Um, of which, you know, I was very successful and and managed to locate both of them. So I thought I would do it that way around this time and let you detail what happened. And as I get something, I will kind of join in and just say, what I'm feeling here or seeing or sensing is this. And yeah, let's kind of see where we go from there. Debbie, thank you. From a personal point of view, this will be an epic, cathartic release. And I think that particular approach is going to work well for me in terms of framing our discussion and picking up the nuances that you will pick up as I go through the particular uh, victims. And you are right in your assertion in terms of none of the victims ever had any desire to become a sex worker. And indeed, the first victim, Mary Nichols, who was born Mary Walker, on the 26th of August, 1845, had a very humble but very, very stable and loving life. In fact, in those days, it was unusual for people to go to school, even more unusual for women, for girls, to be able to be taught to read and write. But Mary was given that opportunity by her doting father to be able to read and write. Uh, She married uh, William Nichols, a local warehouseman, and they had five children and later resided in a very splendidly named and uh, eminently more comfortable area of uh, Whitechapel, Peabody Buildings on Stamford Street. However, her life began a spiral of despair when the marriage failed and she divorced William following an affair with his near neighbour. She turned to drink, her mental health deteriorated, and more importantly, the constant arguing with her once adoring father 
ended up with her being kicked out onto the streets. With no means of any other support, she turned to prostitution and she was murdered on the 31st of August, 1888, aged 43. And I think at this juncture, I'd like to turn back to you, Debbie. Was she a single mum then with her children at home? Were they young children as well? No, she wasn't a single mother. No, as when she married um, William, as I say, mm. they, they had a, a quite a, a good housing uh, stock to live in. In fact, it was, a, it was a brand new building that they moved into with the five children. And William had the affair with, with a near neighbour. She didn't know her killer. She did not know her killer at all. Because I, I think there have been some some people out there, you know, in the world of crime who've suggested that some of the victims actually knew, knew the Ripper. You know, they knew who it was. They, they recognised him. I think it's been suggested um, certainly by some people that perhaps that some of the ladies were a patient of the Ripper. A hundred percent, she did not know her killer. Okay, that's the first thing. That that is really fascinating, Debbie. Because if if we can now look at the death scene of of Mary Nichols, I think mm-hmm. that that assertion, in my opinion, is reflected in the death scene. And I'll try and not make it as uh, as graphic as you know it's been written down. But her throat was severed by two deep cuts. And having said that, uh, I didn't want to make it too descriptive. I I recognise that that statement is pretty descriptive. And one of these was completely severed the tissue in, in such a way that my assertion is that this individual knew exactly what they were doing. They were skilled in what they were doing. And I think that for someone that may have had a relationship or knew Mary, I just don't think that... They knew each other. So I think your assertion is, is, is correct. Her um, private parts were uh, mutilated, in fact, stabbed twice. And the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep, jagged wound, causing her bowels to protrude. I mean, it is absolutely graphic um, and, and very, very disturbing. But, um, yeah, I even reading that, and, you know, I've read it many, many times before, when you actually... What have you done, Debbie? You've actually given a form of identity to Mary, perhaps for me for the first time, in terms of what you're picking up. So that, that was really, really important to me. What year was this when she was, when she was killed? She was killed in 1888 on the 31st of August. She definitely was not the first victim. She wasn't. Third is the one that I'm hearing. Third. It's because, you see, we're doing this episode in an entirely different way to the others, aren't we? So what I am seeing here, I'm seeing a vision of of this man. What incredibly thin lips he's got, quite high cheekbones and not gaunt, but there's a bit of a gaunt look about him. I know it's like I'm in his head and, and this always happens when I, I call it work, but, you know, for, to simplify it. It's like I go into the head either of in, in a situation like this, the victim. And as you can see, I'm not looking at the screen now. I'm actually, I'm looking over, you know, I'm, I'm just focusing on the sky. I'm either in the head of the victim 
or in the head of the the murderer. And right now I'm in the head of the murderer because that's that's what I'm interested in. Who is he? You know, who who was he, rather? This is not the first time that he's done this. She's number three. A hundred percent, she is number three. And there is no connection and there is no relationship between he and her. This was just a matter of her being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But there is a reason for him doing what he's doing. I'm just not quite sure of it yet, but I'm sure I will be as we go on. So, yes, go on to the next case. Thanks, Debbie. That, that's really interesting because if you look at it from a criminologist's point of view, I, I would sum that first recorded murder as, you know, considered and practised butchery, which, in my professional opinion, you don't do that as an entry-level murder. The first one was minimal, minimal injuries, to be honest. That's, that's the first one. That was almost like a taster for him. The second one is is the, yes, the in-between one, not as extreme as what he's done here on this third occasion. I feel it's very much around her head and neck area with the second case. I think the first case, it might have been um, considered to be like a simple stabbing or something. I'm not sure. Um, with the second case, though, it, there is a bit more. And I think that it's mainly focused around her head or neck with whoever was the second victim. And I think there was um, possibly he was disturbed. I feel as if he did go down to her abdomen or lower region of her torso to injure her there severely. I feel that there's a sudden abrupt stop to that. And this time, this third time, he was in, I want to say rage, but I don't feel anger. Do you know what I actually feel? I actually feel that he is trying to feel something by by doing this and he's had to go to extreme lengths of mutilating somebody to actually even feel some emotion inside himself, which is of disgust. It's disgust, that's the feeling. But he is devoid of all, all emotion. This is definitely somebody that was a psychopath. Definitely. Uh, he is definitely a professional man, a high achieving man. And you know how they say there are some professions that you almost need to be or need to have psychopathic tendencies to be able to be in those professions, like a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon or something like that. You need to kind of really have some tendencies, you know, towards towards being a psychopath in terms of not having any emotion. He definitely, I think, is a surgeon. He is, definitely. And there are many reasons for him doing this, but one of the reasons is definitely for him to feel something and I don't know if I'm putting myself across quite well with that because my head is over on the other side (laughs) at the moment yeah when you actually you know look at the um, uh, full extent of the injuries uh, to Mary they are very consistent in what you say I'd like with your permission then to go on to a week later when the second reported victim Annie 
Chapman was found. And Annie was born Elizabeth Ann Smith. It's believed on the 25th of September, 1840. The reason being that uh, documentation is sparse about her, her background. But uh, she married an army guy. They had a happy life. She later became a domestic servant. Although her other tag was less endearing, according to her brother, she first took to drink when she was quite young. But nonetheless, she matured into a doting mother of three after marrying James Chapman on the 1st of May 1869. Tragically, her eldest daughter, Emily Ruth, died of meningitis aged 12 on her brother John's second birthday. And this harrowing trauma turned Annie back to alcohol to lessen the enduring pain. Her marriage and home life crumbled, mental health deteriorated, and she suffered from tuberculosis and she left home and turned to prostitution, selling flowers. She was murdered on the 8th of September, 1888, aged 47. And as I say, Annie Chapman's body was found a week later after Mary Nichols and a similar destruction of her body, uh, consistent with uh, what had happened with Mary Nichols in terms of the throat was severed by two deep cuts. But this then went on to a different level of horror, in, in, in my opinion. The abdomen had been cut entirely open and a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed upon her left shoulder, another section of skin and flesh, plus her small intestines. It's fascinating for me, having you listen to this without interruption, Debbie, because I've written about this, yet I'm feeling I'm really emotional as I'm going through this. And I think very often criminologists look at cases like this from a purely sort of factual piece. And I think what we're achieving probably for the first time is we're identifying that these were, were real human beings. It's very interesting to me. It's, it's being highlighted to me, the placing of organs or flesh or there above or on the shoulders. I don't know whether he did this consciously or unconsciously, but I do know the reason for it. The, the placing of organs or flesh on the shoulders is very symbolic of he felt as if he was walking around in his life with a massive weight on his shoulders, as in we all know the expression, feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. He was walking about carrying a secret um, of such, you know, I mean, it was it was enormous. He was he was out there killing people, and and did have the weight of the world on his shoulders in terms of he knew who he was, he knew who he should be, he knew the person that he should have been, and and he was struggling to actually deal with his own self, and the placing of the organs flesh, etc., on her shoulders are very symbolic of two things. One is their death on their shoulders of their, their own organs. And um, he was carrying on his shoulders the, the monumental secret of causing other people's deaths. I don't think it was just on the streets at night either. I think there were things he did within his work as well a bit like kind of Harold Shipman, if you get me. You know, there were mm -hmm. times when, yeah, people would have died that 
maybe would have survived if they would have had a different doctor. So that's the one thing. And then the the other thing is this man has a very difficult time processing something that's very significant in his life that's happening in his life and that is that he hasn't become a father and these are women who are selling sex you know which is obviously sex is connected to motherhood having a baby etc and so he's targeting these women because of a connection for him personally with the fact that this is a high-achieving individual. That's who he is. And he's very, very proud of that fact. And he wanted more than anything to sire a son. And he hasn't. And there is a rage connected to that. And we see with this distribution of organs flesh on the shoulders of of his victim there, which I say, I think probably he did it subconsciously, but it it strikes, it's really striking to me, the, the, the reason behind it. I'm sure many people have wondered why he did that. Well, I'm saying the reason is because the death of those organs there are being worn on her shoulders and that is what he is wearing on his shoulders. So that there we go. There's that aspect of it. But there's also this aspect of who he was married to. And I can't, I actually don't know the name of whoever he was married to, but who whoever he was married to, there was some failure of her organs to work properly to produce a son for him, who he thought would also be very high achieving. This is a complete narcissist that we're talking about here, psychopathic narcissist. Back in those days, infertility, it it wasn't understood or, or, you know, known about in intricate detail like, like now, you know, I mean, now there are all sorts of tests and we know that, you know, infertility can be as a result of a male's sperm not, you know, maybe not being good quality enough, et cetera, et cetera. But back in those days, infertility, the the fault of infertility was firmly placed on women, usually by most men, I think. So in destroying the organs, particularly the uterus, et cetera, um, and, you know, private parts of a female, especially a prostitute, etc., is connected and removing them out of her body is definitely connected to the death of or, or the fact that his wife, um, her organs weren't, weren't working properly in that department. There is a, it's, it's muddy waters It's a very distorted connection, but it's definitely there for me. I feel that connection one million percent. I'd really like to reflect on that piece that you mentioned about the the offender's burden on their shoulders being reflected uh, onto the victim. Because if we look at the autopsy of, of Annie Chapman, it was revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed. So... In terms of, of, of that, what 
What, what, what is that telling you? What it says to me, what I am being told, is from his perspective, his wife's female organs, uterus, you know, etc., blah, 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 were useless from his perspective. Because don't forget, we're talking about somebody who has no empathy. Everything is very black and white. This man is definitely a surgeon. And so from his perspective, his wife's reproductive organs were useless. They were dead. They were as good as dead. They were useless. They hadn't had a baby. He wanted a son. He was angry, in an absolute rage about that. So removing those organs from a female, well, they're dead. They really, really, I suppose, you know, he was he was taking out his wife's organs every single time, wasn't he, <laughs> you know? But I think there was a love or a bond that he had with his wife, so obviously he didn't do anything to her. Even psychopaths can form a bond with somebody. It will be a bond that we wouldn't recognise as love, but in their mind, that's what they think of as love. So this is where I definitely feel the connection is. This is a man who definitely has no children and his wife is, in his eyes, the one that's responsible. She's Her organs aren't working properly. She's infertile. He wouldn't think it was him for a, for a single second, for a minute. OK, Debbie, moving on approximately three weeks later, uh, a double murder, uh, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. One of them wasn't his. I think the first... Was it the first? I don't know. I, I need to listen, actually. I will listen. I'll listen to what you say about them both and then I'll say which one I think is not his. Elizabeth Stride then, she was born on the 27th of November, 1843, in Torslander uh, in Sweden, which is about nine miles west of Gothenburg. And it was described that she was born to proud parents, a very religious um, upbringing. And like many young women from the smaller villages and towns in Sweden, she went into domestic service. Um, the evidence is a little bit um, uh, sort of wishy-washy about her um, early life in, in Sweden. But later police records actually showed she was arrested for prostitution. Uh, she became a domestic servant. Then she moved to the UK to carry on being a domestic servant. On the 7th of March, 1869, she married carpenter John Thomas Stride, residing in East India Dock Road. And they ran a coffee shop in Poplar. The couple had no children. And their relationship began to fail in 1874. And documentation that I've seen shows that she was admitted to the Poplar Workhouse in March 1877. And census records indicate that the couple reunited, incredibly, in 1881, living in Bow. John died of tuberculosis, and Elizabeth then embarked on a string of erratic relationships, to which she then returned to prostitution. And she was murdered on the, the 29th of September 1888, aged 44. Elizabeth Stride, the cause of her death was a, a single clear-cut incision measuring six inches across her neck, which had severed her left carotid artery and trachea before terminating before her right jaw. So I suppose if you reflect on the first two victims, although it was horrific, there didn't seem to be the level of uh, butchery that had occurred with Mary and Anne. She wasn't his. No, no, he's not responsible for, for that one. 
Catherine Eddowes was born on the 14th of April 1842 in Wolverhampton. She was the sixth of 12 children and uh, she came to London with her parents to find work and subsequently secured work as a template stamper in a local uh, workhouse. Uh, she later entered into a relationship with former soldier Thomas Conway and mothered three children. Although there's no documentary evidence to confirm marriage, she began to refer to herself as Kate Conway and tattooed herself on her left forearm with initials TC. Around 1873, after the birth of her youngest son, the relationship began to falter and Kate began to drink, which her husband, a teetotaler, actually, you know, really abhorred. Domestic violence became rife and she'd often be seen with black eyes and bruising. Uh, she appeared before Thames Magistrates Court on a charge of being drunk and disorderly. She tended to earn money from domestic work and seasonal hop picking in Kent, and it's thought she supplemented her often miserable wages with occasional prostitution in order to pay for rent. If that failed, it was reported she was often known to sleep rough, and she was murdered on the same night. Her injuries, Catherine Eddowes had her throat severed from ear to ear, her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep and jagged wound before intestines had been placed over her right shoulder, the mm. section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and left arm. I can go on to say more graphic about that, but it was totally different in terms of the level of violence that was used against Elizabeth Stride. Which shoulder were, were her organs placed on again? I'm sure you said right shoulder... Yeah, right shoulder. Yeah, yeah, right shoulder. Yeah, I can see why he's done that. He thinks he is coming from a place of still the same with the burden carrying uh, carried on the shoulders, still the same. Um, I feel actually he may have been disturbed, you know, right at the end of that murder as well. What tends to suggest that disturbance to you then? It's how I feel at the end. I feel that there was still more he wanted to do and but couldn't and had to leave that's what i feel with that yeah the first one i've no connection to where are you in your headspace you, you said earlier on you you, you were I'm in your headspace head. you you, you mm-hmm. right okay i'm in his head mhm yeah which will sound very odd to some people and i'm sure there's people listening who don't believe it for a minute all i can say is that you know, my track record, I, I must blow my own trumpet here and say that I've got a very, very, very good reputation for being right. Obviously, we can't really verify this. Well, to a degree we can't, but we might be able to, I suppose, in some way, shape or form at some point with DNA. But anyway, yeah, I'm in his head. The coroner said about Catherine Eddowes that, uh, in uh, his opinion, these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. So I suppose my issue of contention is what allowed the offender to be given that luxury of of five minutes? Because generally murders or murderers, uh, if they're in the open, do not have that um, luxury of five minutes, and, and these these are on the streets of, of of Whitechapel. So, I'm just wondering at that moment in time, what what's what are you picking up about how the offender was allowed that luxury of five minutes in, in open space? 
As far as he's concerned, he wants those organs, he wants them out. He wants those organs out. And um, I actually also feel that um, this whole wanting to feel some, some emotion as well, I'm sure I've read somewhere that somebody's heart was missing from, from their body over the time whenever I've, I've actually, you know, looked at the Ripper. I'm sure that was somebody, you mentioned before about, was it half a kidney, a human kidney or something was sent in the post somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure I've read that somebody's heart was missing. I think, I think that he, he wanted to feel something and I think especially with the heart, I think he may have eaten it, actually. And I think he may have eaten the other half of the kidney in an effort to try and feel something, um, which he couldn't. So, Okay. It's interesting you talk about the heart. That actually links into the the final victim, uh, Mary Jane Kelly, whose heart was missing uh, from the crime scene. Um, As a reflective piece about Mary, because I think it's important that we, we frame victims as more than just names. She was pretty much an enigma. Her early life is somewhat hazy and she was the author of much of her own testimony. In fact, she had a very um, fractious life, but a a verve for life, which um, allows me personally to ignore any potential embellishments. Um, She was young, vivacious, fiery Irish girl who, according to her version of events, was born in 1863 in Limerick, shortly after her father, John Kelly, relocated the family to, it's believed, Carmarthen in Wales, where she was employed in the ironworks. Um, Later on, uh, she came to reside in London and worked in a tobacconist in Chelsea before entering domestic service in Spitalfields. In that particular well-heeled part of uh, London, uh, elite brothels were, were not uncommon, and she quickly established herself as one of the most popular girls because she was an, act, uh, an incredibly, stunningly beautiful young lady. Often dressed in expensive clothing, she hired carriages to transport her across the metropolis. Legend has it that wealthy client Francis Craig persuaded her to live with him in France, where she adopted the name Mary Jeanette. A fortnight later, the... Fiery Mary, I'll put it that way, was back in London. Her glitzy lifestyle began to wane and she began to drink heavily. And she eventually found herself uh, with a man called Morganstone close to the commercial gasworks in Stepney. And latterly, according to her neighbour, Lizzie Albrook, Mary became depressed and yearned to return to Ireland. She was often heard singing Irish songs whilst drunk and due to her abusive behaviour, she earned the nickname Dark Mary. And she was murdered on the 9th of November whilst inside her lodgings at 13 Millers Court, aged 25. So of all the victims, this was the first one to actually be killed inside a dwelling. And her injuries were were off the scale. What year is that? It's 1888 on the 9th of November. This is his final one. Would you like me to uh, summarise some of the horrific injuries that Mary sustained? Yeah, yes. Yeah, please, Ian. Although, you know, it's not nice to um, hear, but yeah, yeah, okay. It, it's not, and, I, and I've read this many, many times before, but I guess that, you know, um, for me, this exploration, uh, putting an identity behind victims rather than just referring to them, their, their names, actually gives a poignancy that perhaps, you know, I've not really been aware of um, before. But 
The extensive, um, extensively mutilated and disemboweled body of Mary was discovered lying on the bed in the single room where she lived at 30 Miller's Court. Um, that's off Dorset Street in Spitalfields at 10.45 in the morning on Friday the 9th of November, 1888. This is incredibly gruesome. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition. Her throat severed down to the spine, her abdomen almost emptied of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys and one breast had been placed beneath her head and other organs uh, placed uh, beside her foot and sections of her abdomen and thigh were upon a bedside table. And as you mentioned earlier on, her heart was missing from the crime scene. I think the most horrific thing for me is, is the inference from the fact that multiple ashes were found within the fireplace, suggesting that the uh, murderer had burned several items. They don't go into what items were, were burned, but um, I think... Uh, we can perhaps guess of uh, some of the items that were put in the fire. Nothing placed on her shoulders this time. No. Everything changed at this point. Everything had to change. This, this is the pinnacle. This is the, ooh, totally, completely out of control now. And he knew that this was going to be his last because it had to be his last because if it wasn't his last he was definitely going to be caught and this was completely and utterly totally out of control and what he he did to correct his situation of not having his son which he so desperately wanted from his wife, who he viewed as being the one responsible for the infertility issue, he had decided there was something that he could do and this would put an end to it all and that is father a child with somebody else. This man was a surgeon to the royal family and he fathered a child I don't know at this moment in time whether this was cons consensual between him and a female there. It's definitely within the royal family. A female within the royal family. This isn't a servant. This man, this high-achieving man with this massive sense of, you know, self-worth, etc., wasn't going to get just anybody pregnant. So I actually am shown a scene that now in our day, we would say it was similar to a smear, which I'm sure they didn't have in that day. But I'm sure that they sometimes had to have examinations or something, obviously. And I actually feel that this could have been a situation where his, I'm going to call it a sample, could have been inserted into a female without her knowledge. He's fathered a child within the royal family. A hundred percent he has. A hundred percent he has. What you would be looking for is, and I don't know the dates of, of uh, without actually sitting, looking, researching, dates of when different members of the royal family have, have been born, but I think we're looking around Queen Victoria time. I don't know when her children were born. I have no idea. I know that what I'm saying will seem completely outlandish to some people, but I am telling you what I get. 
So you would be looking for a child that was born that was different to, you know, different to maybe brothers and sisters or I don't know. I, I, I genuinely, genuinely do not know when births were, etc. there within the royal family without sitting and researching it. This was the last one. This is 1888. Yeah, they're all in 1888, yeah. Yeah, so he's done it then. So you would be looking for uh, a birth in 1889. Wow, Debbie, what an incredible disclosure. I guess I'm looking at where I'd like to take our inquiry to, but I think that at this juncture, I need to look at 1889, and I think there needs to be a bit more research around that before we start to look at perhaps discussing who I believe is the real identity of Jack the Ripper. Fabulous, Ian. Wow, this has been a session. I feel as if I've had my head in the clouds for the past God knows how long. (laughs) We've been here for a while, haven't we, discussing this. So, I think this is worth revisiting. Uh, We've got so much more to say about this. And so, you know what? Let's bring this episode to a close. Let's go away. Let's see what we can see, do some research, come back, and let's have, you know, a bit more of a chat. Sounds good to me. Can I say, Debbie, before we go, though, I have looked over these pieces of information from a purely criminal justice point of view. And I guess one thing I've never engaged with is, is the emotion uh, to to the level that we've looked at today. And I think some of those sort of reflections have, have really reinforced that we're talking about the real lives of five incredible human beings that met their deaths in such a horrific uh, manner. And uh, that's been uh, the sort of learning uh, for me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. What an episode. We will be back with more. So please stay tuned. Remember to follow, subscribe. Obviously, it's free. And let me know your thoughts. There will be a post on my Facebook page. There'll be posts up on Instagram. Just let me know your thoughts. What do you think? You know, I think we've we've kind of uncovered something a little bit different with this case today. Stay tuned, guys, and we will see you soon. Bye for now. Bye.